Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Another drop of Digital Voices, and you won't be disappointed, just like every week. Awesome, awesome people that we get to chat with. Today is Dr. Dan Nigren. He is the Chief Information Officer at Maine Health. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Ed. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. This is great. Yeah, I don't think anyone needs much of an introduction, but of course, you know, you're on the board of Chime, and even more importantly, you've been serving on the advisory board of Divergent for some time. So thank you for your service to the industry, you know, especially on the Chime side. So uh, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I, I consider each of those things a privilege. Uh, so thanks, Ed. So, Megan, before we jump into this, we had breaking news, so we're recording in late 2023. How does it feel to be the producer of a top 3% podcast in the world? Ed, that news is amazing. I honestly just feel lucky. Like I feel like I'm along for the ride. Like It would be nothing without you and all of the amazing guests that come on the show. Well, we're, we're excited that you're part of, our, you're, you're part of the reason uh, that makes everything work so well. And of course, it's all about our guests uh, like Dan. So I want to jump in. So yeah, we met Dan, we were thinking maybe 10 years ago, probably at a Chime event. We've both been in the industry for a while, uh, speak quite a bit. So uh, who knows, we're probably on a panel together at some point, uh, certainly at a bar, like we talked about, like, uh, you know, at a Chime event or something. And uh, you, you've been someone I've always uh, looked up to, you know, I've always lo- was intrigued by physicians in a similar role as myself. And uh, I think you've done a great job. Uh, you got this long history. Uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But the first thing everyone wants me to ask, Dan, is what's on your playlist? So what kind of music do you like to listen to? Yeah. So how, how long do we have it? <laughs> um, this is this is this is something that I get passionate about. I, I love music and um, I don't know if we'll have time to talk about it, but I'm into not stuff that most people have heard of before. Um, and so. You know, going back to my nightclub DJing days, I was spinning stuff that was off the beaten path, but, you know, made people move on the dance floor. Yeah. Um, and I've tried to stay stay up with that stuff. So I guess most recently there's this really awesome band called Molchat Doma. Uh, they're from Belarus and they're they're a new band. They, they they're actually tour. They toured the United States recently, but they play this really um sort of 90s, uh, late 80s influence, sort of goth um, rock, uh, very electronic, uh, drum machine driven, but with lots of guitars and, and sort of marauding uh, vocals, uh, all in, in, in Russian or Belarus. I don't know what language they're speaking, but I don't understand it, but it sounds yeah. kind of cool. And what's really interesting about them is uh, for some reason, the, the young crowd picked up on them and one of their songs was was it was this huge TikTok sensation with like millions of views and all the kids are dancing to it and I don't know what they do on TikTok but they were doing it there and so the band like all of a sudden got this huge following um, so this is how they became uh, bigger and and you know going on to big things but I love the music so uh, that's one of them another band is uh, is a band called Tycho. T-Y-C-H-O, uh, another uh, electronics-driven uh, band, um, really sort of beautiful, uh, melodic kinds of uh, tracks, um, and uh, they do a lot of soundtrack work now. They've been featured in a bunch of movies, 
Uh, I've seen their their music uh, in used in commercials now, so they're getting around also. So two of the newer bands that I've been into. No, I love this. I, I wrote down wrote those down. I'm going to download some of their music uh, later today because I know that you yourself are an artist and you're, in, you're into electronic mu- music yourself. Like you create some of this type of music, right? Yeah. So uh, again, I. I started out as a, as a nightclub DJ, as I mentioned. This goes back to my college and, and med school days. And so me and a DJ friend decided one day that, hey, you know, we've heard enough of this music that we're playing. Why don't we take a crack at making some of this ourselves? And so we bought some synthesizers, drum machines. And, you know, mind you, not, neither of us were really musicians. We don't we still don't consider ourselves that. But we, you know, messed around and got the computers going and and somehow put together songs that uh, the friends that we played them for thought, hey, this stuff's not bad, you guys. You know, they were kind of surprised. So that was all the encouragement we needed. And we kept going. And uh, we ended up uh, sending the, that music off uh, to a bunch of small independent record labels all over the world um, to see if they would they would license it or sign us or whatever. And to our shock, uh, they did. And uh, before wow. long, we, we had our first, uh, this was back when, well, I guess vinyl is still around, but but it was only vinyl. And, and that was our first release, a four track uh, EP on this really uh, well-regarded Belgian label. Um, and that, you know, started the wheels in motion. And before I knew it, you know, we had multiple releases out on multiple record labels and we were being asked to, to go DJ in, in foreign countries and stuff. And it was a fantastic ride. It was so much fun. Yeah, that's amazing. So what was the name? Can you say the name of your uh, duo or band? Oh, yeah. yeah, the band was called Glitch. Um, so if you if you look real hard on Spotify, you'll find us there. Um, I say look real hard because unfortunately back then, this is early nineties, we were the only band called glitch, at least that we were aware of nowadays, there's about a thousand glitches. So you'll kind of have to sift through them. Um, but you can also go to our record label to, to check them out. Um, and so that's the next part of the story. We got, we got, you know, bored of just being a band. Um, and we, we said, well, look, we're trying to get our music licensed on all these other small independent record labels around the, the world. Why don't we just start our own label? And then, you know, we'll have full creative control. We don't have to worry about, you know, if they like the stuff or not. And so Defective Records uh, was born. And so if you go to DefectiveRecords.com, uh, you'll, you'll see our whole discography, um, links to Bandcamp and all of that sort of stuff. Um, and so what started out there as just a, a vehicle for us to put out our own music, uh, after a while, we started getting submissions from other people, uh, just like we would send our demos out. They would yes. s- uh, start to send us their stuff. And before we knew it, we were putting out other people's music as well on on our label. Uh, and over the course of about three or four years, we put out about 30 different releases on our wow. label. Yeah. Yeah. So it was yeah. a fantastic uh, ride. And meanwhile, you're going to medical school and, you know, becoming an executive. People always time. ask me, you know, Dan, how did you do this stuff in med school? And, and my answer is, how did I get through med school without having done it? I yeah. mean, that was my release. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, you know, I needed an outlet somewhere and that, that's what it was. Dan, you're a super interesting person. I know we're going to talk more about leadership and some of the things that you've done in your past. 
Uh, but I, you know, I was always intrigued too by your your last name. What's the origin? What's your ethnic background? Yeah, so um, Nigrin or Nigrin, Nigrin, I suppose is the really correct pronunciation. Um, originally, has got Spanish roots. My ancestors uh, were from Spain, um, and I'm I'm a Jewish person, so Sephardic Jewish uh, roots. And around the time of the Spanish Inquisition. I guess you know life was not great for Jewish folks uh, in in Spain, and so there was a mass exodus, and folks I think scattered in many directions. But uh, the directions that my ancestors went to was east, and they ended up in uh, in Istanbul in Turkey, and so um, many generations obviously passed. But my mom and dad both were born and, and raised in Istanbul. And um, they only emigrated uh, to this country uh, in the late 50s, uh, early 60s. And uh, so I'm a first generation American. But those are, that's the that's the roots. Yeah, that's very cool. Uh, you know, story. I'm first generation American. Also, my family coming from Germany. And it's pretty cool. In Istanbul, uh, we uh, I know that you visited recently uh, is pretty fantastic uh, city. Uh, I just love it so much. Yeah, I loved it too. And it was, uh, it was like a cultural melting pot. Uh, you know, I used to think New York was, uh, was the melting pot. No, it's, uh, it's a place like Istanbul, just cu- every different yeah. culture, every different race, ethnicity, um, skin color. It was, it was wild. I loved it. Yeah. My, my wife and I, we, we like to travel. We don't like to hit the same places twice just because there's so much of the world to see, but we both want to go back. We, we had, limited time as part of a larger trip. I think we were there just maybe four days and we're like, man, we, we could easily spend, you know, another week. It was amazing. Yeah. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so cool. Now it all makes sense. Like when I think about Dan, this is all making sense here, your your, uh, musical background and, um, uh, where you came from in Europe and stuff. So what is your passion life message or mantras or some words that you kind of live by? Oh, passion. I, I think one of them, and maybe you're getting you're getting a feel for this already with uh, with respect to my musical background. I like to I like to collide interests. Um, so medicine and computing, um, music and computing. Um, we haven't really talked uh, about that angle on music. I, I write musical software now for for fun on the side, but I like I like mashing up things together. And um, and finding neat intersections between uh, things, and to me, it makes them all more interesting. Um, not to mention, it keeps me kind of plugged into to uh, passions. I've never been one to have only one uh, passion uh, in my life. I've, I tend to have had multiple, and so I've gotten creative and, and I guess lucky along the way to be able to merge some of these interests along the way. Yeah, no, that's, that's very. Very cool. I'm definitely looking up um, on Spotify uh, for Glitch and DefectiveRecords.com. Um, so I'll be, yeah, I'll be next time you see me and you ask what's on my playlist. I'll be talking. I'll be talking to Glitch. <laughs> so, I'll, I'll get you a T-shirt. Okay. Yeah. No, super interesting story. Tell us a little bit about uh, other parts of your life that brought you to where you are today. So you know, how did you get interested in? you know, maybe how you grew up or how you got interested in medicine and, you know, you were Harvard, Boston, and and then ultimately up in Maine. Yeah, well, I, I guess, you know, I'll start with, uh, with medicine. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about my mom and dad. My dad um, was a physician. He was a pediatric endocrinologist. And um, 
and my mom also uh, worked and, and helped him in his office, both in Turkey and then when they came to this country, uh, eventually in his office uh, here as well. She's got a, a biochemistry background. Um, but, uh, but I always saw my, my dad happy in his career. Um, he was of the age when, you know, he used to invite uh, families, you know, uh, parents of, of kids and the kids themselves to our home to help educate them about, uh, you know, their newly diagnosed disorder, whatever that was. Uh, he saw a lot of uh, kids with diabetes. And so, um, you know, he would have the, the families over where he would sort of talk to them and explain things to them. You know, nowadays, that kind of thing, you know, you'd, you'd be a little yeah. creeped out by it. Like, why is this doctor inviting me to his house? But that's what he did. And I think families were really appreciative. And, and so I got to see little glimpses sure. of, of that. Um, and I, I, it was never explicit. My, my parents never pushed me in any way to, to follow medicine. But I, I got to think that there was a subliminal uh, thing that happened there, that I, I saw him being happy. I saw him really helping other people. And that resonated with me. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to be a, a doctor relatively early uh, in, in my life, surely by the time that I got to, to high school and, and into college. Um, so, you know, that was that was how I got launched probably into that side of things. I will say along the way, with respect to technology and computing, um, that spark got also ignited kind of early, probably in my high school years. It was the, the, the early beginnings of uh, personal computers, you know, Radio Shack, TRS-80 kinds of uh, machines. Uh, I learned basic on those along with uh, every other kid in high school those days. Um, and I, I was hooked, you know, I was copying programs out of the backs of magazines, you know, to, to make some video game or, or something like that. And, and I really like enjoyed that stuff for a while and, and pretty much all self-taught. There was not a lot of, um, formal education you could really take at that point. I think I took one course in college in Pascal, uh, but that was about it. But it was something that I really enjoyed and, and pursued on my own for a while. Um, it wasn't really until medical school and residency where I kind of had to give it up for a while, simply because I, I just, I guess I was a little busy with my, with my DJing gig and uh, with med school and stuff, so something had to go. But then when, uh, when I um, started in my um, fellowship, and I should say, first of all, that there's a couple of ironies uh, here. One is uh, that I ended up pursuing the same exact subspecialty as my dad. I, I became a pediatrician, and in fact, I ended up becoming a pediatric endocrinologist, so like father, like son. But the second irony of that is that um, Along the way, I also developed type 1 diabetes myself. Um, and so, you know, I like to joke to say that uh, the, re the reason I became an endocrinologist is because I figured I already knew one disease pretty well. So it was one less that I had to learn on my own. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so when I started my fellowship in uh, pediatric endocrinology, and, and this is uh, my first move up to Boston, uh, from, from Baltimore where, where I was doing my training at Hopkins. Um, when I came to Boston, I realized that not only could I train in pediatric endocrinology, but I also got wind of this, this newly developing field called medical informatics. And I said, aha, you know, this is how I'm going to try and get back to my computing interests, how I could do that mashup like we talked about before 
of medicine together with with technology and computing. And again, you know, once I got a little bit of a taste of that, I was really hooked. And um, and so knew that there was a future uh, with some of that somehow um, in in it for me. Um, so I ended up uh, finishing those two fellowships and um, in, and um, came on staff at Boston Children's. And, you know, I thought I was just going to do it in an academic way. I was writing grants, you know, informatics kinds of grants um, and and continuing to see patients. And um, then the next part is sort of somewhat unexpected, right time, right, right place kind of thing. Um, the existing CIO at, at Boston Children's um, decided to take a new role at another organization. And so I was asked to step in as, uh, as interim CIO. I had been acting as sort of a liaison between the clinical staff and the technology staff. The role was uh, called the Director of Clinical Computing. I think nowadays you would have called it a CMIO role, but those didn't exist back then. Um, so they asked me to step in as interim CIO. And I managed not to botch things up too badly over the course of the next three or four months. And the next thing I knew, um, I, I was there as uh, the full-time CIO. Um, so that was a great opportunity and I, I seized it. And um, I had a fantastic run at, at Boston Children's where I spent the next 20 years in that role. Yeah, you, you've been in that role a long time at Boston Children's. So, so it was around 20, 2002, early 2000, uh, that you became the CIO. And then, yeah, it's very unusual for a CIO to remain at the same organization for that long for a number of reasons, sometimes by choice and sometimes not by choice. Uh, but 20 years, that's that's uh, definitely an outlier. Uh, and yeah, and what you all have done at Boston Children's uh, is really impressive. So tell us about the move uh, and, and going to Maine Health. To, to just tell us uh, all about that, because that's recent, right? Within the last uh, year, year and a half? Uh, uh, yeah, actually, almost two years. Next month will be two years. Um, so, yeah, first of all, it's been a fantastic transition for me. I absolutely love the organization. You know, it's funny. I, I used to think that I was I was lucky to be at a place called uh, or a place like Boston Children's because of the vibe. You know, you walk yeah. into this place and you feel it right away. And it's probably similar to other children's hospitals, right? It's it's all about the kids. It's all about you know the mission and and so on. And so I was bracing myself a little bit, uh, you know, as I moved to the scary adult world, as I like to put it, that it was going to be colder and, you know, yeah. more sterile. Not the case at all, at least at this organization. Um, absolutely um, incredible warmth, incredible dedication to patient care and to the community. Um, and I do think that's probably a unique aspect uh, of, you know, the setting. Uh, Maine is a very um, community centric uh, part of the country. Um, very, very strong ties to the community and, and to its um, its members. And so that um, is very palpable at, at this organization. Um, so overall, uh, an absolutely great uh, transition for me. And, and the reason why I, I did decide to move is one, I did step back and say, oh my gosh, I've been at this one organization for 25 years, if you count my clinical years. 20 in the in the same role and i probably should see how you know the rest of the world operates yeah um but i also wanted a little bit more uh, breadth in terms of oversight uh from an it perspective i wanted to see what the challenge of of managing at a system level um you know not just a single hospital but a, a network of hospitals and and some of the some of the challenges that that go along with that so that really enticed me um 
and the geography was right too. Um, or my youngest son was was still in high school, didn't want to disrupt that at all. And yeah. and so the fact that I just needed to reverse my commute, I used to commute down into Boston. Now I just commuted up into uh, Portland, Maine. Um, a much less stressful commute, I might add. Um, yeah, sure. And so that all worked for me. Um, in the in the interim, I did finally move up to the Portland area, and that's a, a really cool city if you've ever been. Yeah, I've been. Close. I, I stepped into Maine for the first time uh, recently. I think I was close by. I was in New Hampshire, uh, across from the border. I'm trying to remember the name of the town. It was a bridge that took me across to Maine. Portsmouth. Yes, Portsmouth. Yeah, Portsmouth. So yeah. I probably wasn't too far. Yeah. How far, far? How far is that from from where you are? Uh, one more hour north, and you'll be in Portland. Okay. Uh, yeah. Someday, invite me up. I, I want to come visit. Uh, I have heard wonderful things about Maine. Never had been there, but like I said, when we were at Portsmouth, I realized if I ran across this one particular bridge, I could claim I've been to Maine. <laughs> so that's what, and then my wife and I took a picture. We just went halfway across, kissed each other, took a picture and said, okay, we've been in Maine. Uh, but it's, it's, we want to get up there for, for, you know, to hang out a little bit longer. Um, let's talk about one or two things. Boston Children's, you were there a long time, 25 years, as you mentioned. One or two things that you're most proud of. Then I want to talk about some key initiatives at Maine Health. So I, I'm sure there's a thousand things that you and your team did that you're super proud of in Boston, but maybe one or two things. Yeah, you know, one that comes to mind right away uh, that, that I did do a lot of uh, speaking about um, in 2014, we were unfortunately the subject of a, of a really um, nasty uh, cyber attack uh, levied by Anonymous, you know, with the capital A Anonymous. Yeah. Um, it was around a patient case that was very much in the news and, and, you know, the portrayal in the media was one in which, you know, Anonymous said, hey, we don't like what you're doing, Boston Children's, we're going to punish you. And, um, and so that was an arduous thing. And this is, you know, again, back 2014, it was well before all of the sort of big ransomware attacks that we're now unfortunately accustomed to. Yeah. But what was, what was uh, I guess, interesting with quotes around it uh, with that attack was they were not necessarily after our data, um, although I'm sure they would have appreciated that. They just wanted to disrupt us. And um, yeah. and that the, the aha for us was, oh, my God, this is no longer something where we've got to worry about keeping our arms around our, our, the, our patient data and other data to, to protect that. But we also need to make sure that we're delivering care um, and not disrupting care and jeopardizing, you know, any patients in this process, because that was the kind of disruption that yeah. they were they were levying against us. And so. You know, uh, again, I, I joke, uh, I find the silver lining of that anonymous attack was that I got this great paper in the New England Journal of Medicine as a result, um, where basically we talked about this risk, right? This is no longer cyber attacks as being ones in which you've got to worry about protecting your data assets. You've got to worry about keeping the doors to your organization open and keeping the lights on yeah. and the ventilators on and patients alive. And um, yeah. really raised the um, the you know attention being um, being paid to cybersecurity as a critical aspect of, of what we've got to worry about. Obviously, um, you know now in hindsight, that's been that's been um, held true, right? All of these ransomware attacks that literally have forced hospitals to to um, divert patients. We've all seen the stories about actual patient harm that that's been attributed to these attacks so this stuff you know 
really got got um, got real very fast over the course of those years. Um, so that was a that was an episode that I um, I remember very vividly. I, I'm incredibly proud of our team and organization there that we weathered it. Uh, you know, knock on wood, we made it through without any adverse events. In fact, the FBI went on to find the primary person behind the attack. Um, captured okay. him. He's now serving jail time and so on. So um, an incredible story, but but one that again that I was really proud to uh, to have been a part of. Yeah, that, that's cool. What about at Maine Health? What are one or two things that you're you know strategic initiatives that you're working on that you're allowed to speak about? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, like everywhere, uh, Ed, we're we're struggling with. Um, with uh, patient engagement, you know, digital uh, enablement for our patients. And so we're obviously very hard at work on a variety of things there. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about internally facing um, strains. Uh, obviously, the, um, the um, um, employment uh, um, scenarios we all find ourselves in today are, are challenging. Um, and I'd like to talk a, a little bit about uh, uh, burnout and, and clinician burnout and provider burnout because they're very real and palpable and, and the um, and the pandemic has done nothing but made those things even even worse for us. So we're very much focused on finding ways to make our providers' lives easier um, and make things more efficient for them. So. Um, as an example, we're rolling out um, one of these uh, ambient uh, listening uh, AI-backed tools that's going to help with uh, clinical documentation. Um, you know, there's there's a few on the market now. I won't name vendors, but but suffice it to say that when I was seeing my patients, this was the thorn in my side. I loved seeing my patients, yeah. but I hated doing yeah. the documentation afterwards. So for me, this is like the, you know, the, the Star Trek moment, like all of a sudden the computer is listening to you and it's generating the documentation, you know, automatically for you. That's like a dream come true. And, um, and you know, the technology is there. It's, it's, you know, we're not completely there. I think we're, we're on the path, but it's definitely, it's, it's usable and it's effective in many cases. So this is a tool that we're now piloting with a number of our providers and we're expecting to, to roll it out further based on our experience. No, that's great. Yeah. I, I've heard a lot about, you know, ambient voice and I, I do think, yeah, it's, it's uh, great that we're, piloting, you know, like you are and, and testing it because I think it is part of the future. So it's really cool to see that actually manifest itself. Let's talk a little bit about leadership. You're, you're so interesting, Dan. I, I just wanted to keep going back to music and stuff, but uh, let me ask you a couple of questions around um, leadership. You know, again, you know, the fact that you spent 20 years in the role of the same organization says something about your leadership uh, capabilities. What do you attribute your career success to? You know, people have asked me this question a, a bunch of times, and I never know how to answer it, uh, speaking honestly. But um, I, I think one of the things that people have pointed out to me, so this wasn't a self-reflection, uh, but enough people have told it to me that I, I'm starting to maybe believe it a little bit. I, I'm a pretty even keel guy. I don't get ruffled easily. Um you know, even yeah. in the midst of th this anonymous uh, thing, even in the midst of big downtimes and stuff like that, I keep my cool um, pretty well and my wits about me. And I think that that's that's helped in crisis kinds of situations. But it also yeah. helps just with routine 
day-to-day kinds of things. You know, as a CIO, you know, there's a a new issue, there's a new disgruntled someone um, every day almost. And if you you let those things um, sort of get you off track too easily, you will find yourself in the weeds every day and never able to to lead um, your way out and, and never able to do anything strategic for sure. So I, I've managed to, um, to keep myself grounded and focused on what that future state that I want to get to is. Obviously, you do need to pay attention to the details and, and put out those fires when they surface. But, um, but as you do that, if you can sort of reserve a little bit of bandwidth to, to kind of make sure that you're still making headway towards those strategic goals that you set for your organization, I think that's, that's really important and, and not letting yourself get too derailed by the, by the, um, um, the things that undoubtedly come up every day, uh, some small, some big. Yeah, that's good. That's good advice. What Dan, you know, obviously it hasn't hurt you. The fact that you're a clinician and a lot of the things, right. CIOs do today responsible for things that impact clinicians. We talked about burnout, talked about voice and not everyone is uh, lucky enough to have that background like you do. So what would you say to your non-clinical peers? Obviously, they're probably not going to go back to med school. So short of that, you know, is there anything they can do to just uh, enhance their credibility with the clinicians? Sure. I, I do think um, for one is, you know, attach yourself to clinicians, whether that's a CMIO, CNIO, chief pharmacy officer. Um Surround yourself by those folks and make them your your peers and lock arms with them and get feedback from them. You know, get get um, get input from them around what life is like for those clinicians around your organization and take it to heart. Um, um, the, the other thing that I'd say, which is sort of a corollary, don't just sit back in your in your office and type emails and, and hold meetings. There's no way that you're ever going to get a clinician's experience without getting out there. So um, here at Maine Health, our uh, our CEO is a profound believer in in rounding, and by rounding, he doesn't just mean the clinician's rounding. He means everyone in a leadership role within the organization doing regular rounding out in all parts of our organization, in clinical areas, in administrative areas, finance, the kitchen, the laundry, you name it, you got to get out there. And um, I think for the clinical side of the house, if you spend enough time with the nurses, with the physicians and so on, go on rounds, you go sit and scrub in on some OR cases, you, you learn pretty quickly what life as a clinician is like. Obviously not at a detail level, but you get a much better sense of what those folks go through and you become a lot more empathetic along the way, I'll say. Um, And I I would say that there's a corollary too, which is by you going and you participating and you interacting with those folks and not just uh, absorbing information from them, but also sharing back to them about what our challenges are within IT. I think uh, they often are as equally surprised about the, the complexity and the challenges that we've got to do our work as they do to do theirs. Um, and so there's a give and take that I think is incredibly valuable. And and especially for folks who don't have that clinical background, I, I think it's almost imperative that you do that. 
Yeah, very good uh, advice, Dan. I, I agree with you. If you if you don't do that as a minimum, you're in big trouble. Um, so uh, great words of advice. So we talked about tons of stuff. We've got some new music for our listeners. Uh, no one's ever mentioned the two bands, plus your own. Uh, Glitch at Defective Records and, and DefectiveRecords.com. I'm going to look up both of those. And then, yeah, we talked about the whole concept of mashups, which I love. That's kind of your history. That's kind of your stories, like taking different disciplines, bringing them together. And it, and it brings out your creativity and you bring out solutions and impacts your work. And I'm sure your, your home life too. Um, and, uh, and we talked about Boston children, some of the cool things there. And then, uh, at main health. So we talked about a lot of things and you gave some examples of what we're doing and then, but also how do you bridge that gap with clinicians and in tech? And so a bunch of stuff, I had a bunch more questions, but sadly we run out of time. So I want to leave the last word to you, Dan, basically, is there something we missed that you want to touch on or anything that we talked about that you want to double down on? No, I, I appreciate Ed, the opportunity to just sort of ramble on for a, for a bit with you. I'll maybe just share one thing, you know, this is a bit of advice that I got along the way from, from my mentor at Boston Children's, who um, was, uh, was sort of my sponsor through my medical informatics training um, and, um, and a, a great friend over the years. His name is uh, Zach Kohani. He's now the chair of biomedical informatics at, at Harvard. Um, but when I was just a fellow, he, he told me, you know, Dan, never be intimidated um, or, or think that there are, he used the word giants, there are no giants out there, meaning the folks who are writing these New England Journal articles, the, the, the leaders of, uh, of um, you know, Mayo or Cleveland Clinic or, or Johns Hopkins, or, they're just regular schmoes like you and I. Um, and so don't ever think that, that they're um, any, in any way doing things that you yourself can't do. So shoot high. And, um, and remember that there are no giants. And so that's, that's one thing that I, I like to always talk about with, with younger folks who are, are just starting out and, and even my peers sometimes, because we, we have a tendency to think that there's something special that, that other folks have that, that we don't have ourselves. And it's rarely the case. You just need to apply yourself a bit. Love it. I can't, Dan, I can't think of a better way to end it. That is super sage advice uh thanks for being our guest you're you're a, i always liked you you know we always had a good good chats here and there uh got to learn a lot more about you uh you're a great leader uh thank you for being on digital voices thanks so much ed for the opportunity to be here and i'll see you at the next event whenever that is yeah for sure no we definitely uh see each other at some event here in the in uh, 2023 and uh who knows maybe someday we'll use your uh music as our bumper music in and out uh, so for, for now, uh, that's digital voices. <laughs> All right. Thanks for being part of it. Thank you for listening to digital voices podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.